Welcome to Presidential Podcast. This is Philip. And this is Robert. And we're continuing our discussion of LB of LBJ versus Nixon, how they both handled Vietnam, what the fallout was, what their uh, approach was, and how it affected their legacies and political careers. So we ended last episode, we were talking about LBJ, his popularity, which was probably beginning stages of Vietnam, was in the low 60s what the forces were pushing him into the war, why he thought it would be a good idea to get into the war. Uh, we hit those topics a little bit, and then the war is about to begin, which is where we're going to start off today. Um, if you wanted to go ahead and begin uh, with some ideas about how the war started out for um, the American populace, how it started out militarily, how Johnson was feeling, what was the time span he was going to put on the war to win it, if you just go in like that. So, like so many other um, foreign policy presidents, and you can speak up a bit, Johnson really wasn't driven by foreign policy considerations. I mean, he was domestic policy, legislative politics. He really didn't understand uh, East Asia. He didn't understand Southeast Asia, which is even more of a, a specialized area. He tended to think of the Asians almost like the World War II Japanese militarists. What does that mean? What do you mean by that, World War II Japanese militarists? Oh, um, Prior to the Second World War, say from about the late 1920s uh, up through the uh, 1940s when we defeated the Japanese in the Second World War, the Japanese leadership was made up of men who represented the Army and the Navy in the industries that supplied them. I mean, this, this really was the military-industrial complex. Japanese industry was devoted to modernizing. That meant telegrams, railroads, big, big battleships, munitions, uh, artillery, rifles, and to some extent textiles. I mean, it wasn't the peaceful exporting industrial engineering country that it is now. And the uh, Japanese shifted from a shogunate. Uh, the shoguns were uh, aristocratic lords of high rank who controlled various parts of the country, various prefectures, and they exercised their power mainly through holding semi-permanent, semi-regular armies, which they used to fight with each other and, and uh, improve their standing. The Mijai 
restoration united them under a imperial government where the emperor was more of a figurehead than an actual official and the army and the navy would battle the navy having more supremacy could be an island nation the army having various factions within it which were struggling and as the navy modernized the navy became more factionalized so from the outside looking in if you went to a japanese cabinet meeting you'd probably see six or seven men in uniforms and then one or two dressed in the old fashioned victorian frock coats really but the old school old school japanese clothing like their pre-modernized clothing no no western oh western victorian era clothing um, uniforms okay western you know like edwardian uh, or victorian long, yeah victorian long jackets top hats um they basically model themselves on on english styles but they were they were ruthless militarists you know they had conscription you went in the army served you know a guy could be in the army 25 years and not be both corporal wow so promotions were slow the, the discipline was just hideously strict they beat people the minor infractions so the Americans you got a lot of you got a lot of noise over there clinging the Americans of Johnson's generation tended to view the Japanese as these materialist or uh, militaristic fanatical little guys who just come at us endlessly in huge numbers with you know fanatical dedication to, to the assault very uh, very clever on certain tactics but essentially you know we thought we were racially superior possessed a far superior ideology were bigger and stronger and more numerous and so we could defeat them so that was the mindset that we had regarding Asian now on top of that there was this idea that communism was this monolithic force that the uh, people in the Kremlin maybe 20 guys who ran the Soviet Union basically dictated to the Chinese as they dictated to the uh, satellite countries in, in Central Europe Poland Czechoslovakia and so on so on like that so we saw China a quarter of the world Russia or Soviet Union which back then outnumbered us and maybe like 90 million people in we called it Eastern Europe back then I would call it Central Europe now but basically a third of humanity united against us with this very very ruthless efficient 
powerful ideology. So any country that looked like it was going communist and at the time it was South Vietnam uh, was viewed as a place that we had to fight over. Okay, okay. Let me bring let me bring up a question. Two points here. One, is it true that socialists and I'm just going to lump in the communists with them for the ease of simplification that in this era people thought of socialism or communism as the kind of inevitable future like it was like capitalism was going to eventually find its way to the grave Marx had predicted that socialism and communism were post-capitalist forms of economy and forms of society at what point did the socialists and communists feel that kind of a sense of inevitable victory because growing up in the second in the later parts of the 20th century there was never that feeling for my generation growing up where the feeling is that socialism or communism is on the ascent it's been more of a feeling of like uh, vindication I would say for capitalism but there's also the kind of Rewriting, I believe, of the of the emotional and psychological feeling of the past, where in the past I don't feel the capitalists were as secure as say they felt in the late '90s in the West in America, where they're just saying, "Well, it was inevitable that we were going to be communism. The proof is in the pudding, etc., etc." Okay. So in 1949... Oh, let me just say my other point that we can touch on because I'm going to forget it otherwise. The other point I, I, I wanted to ask about is who drafted the containment doctrine and um, okay. was, was LBJ just enacting already established doctrine or was he pushing a new ideal, a kind of pushing forward and already a, a new ideal? But the second part of the question first, who, who drafted the containment doctrine uh, because that was important in shaping their mindset. And then I'm going to go to the second part about the inevitability of communism. Okay. So a man named George Cannon, K-E-N-N-A-N, is considered the father of containment. Basically, at the end of the Second World War, we had 12 million men under arms. The British had whatever forces they had. Uh, probably, you know, they're, they're hard to calculate because a lot of them were colonial troops whom they didn't know how to use. And the Russians probably had 16 million men to Okay. The Japanese had three or four, and the Chinese probably somewhere in the same, same vicinity. So there were millions of men wandering around, well-armed, uh, in, in military formations. So for whatever reason, um, we let the Russians come in as far as Berlin. Now I think basically it was to keep them in the war uh, while we fought the Japanese because Russia and the USSR rather and Japan were not at war at the top at the end of the war in Europe. Okay. Uh, the Soviet Union and Japan were not at war with each other. And Roosevelt thought that we needed to have the Soviet 
forces to invade Japan. But we didn't have enough people that if we did that if we took on the whole invasion of Japan by ourselves, we would lose too many people. The American populace would would lose heart, and uh, we might even lose the war. So and and with us engaged in a war against Japan, uh, which we might or might not win, the Soviets would have their big army. And we wouldn't have forces to uh, contend with them. So Roosevelt wanted the Red Army shifted east and as engaged in Japan as we were. So uh, the atom bomb obviously changed all that because instead of having to invade Japan and fight a long, grinding, horribly costly war of attrition that might have gone on another. Five or six years, with far, far greater casualties on both sides. You know, just uh, atrocities. Un, you know, Truman dropped two atom bombs and ended the war. Right. So the, the USSR had a gigantic army in Europe, much larger than ours. Uh, Europe was starving. Literally, people were starving because of the. Structure of the warfare and the transportation grid—they couldn't get food to people. Uh, the bombing destroyed uh, people's homes, so they didn't have shelter. So we had this huge uh, rebuilding job to do in, in, in uh, Europe and in the Far East. So Truman. Who took over after Roosevelt died? Adley, who took over after Churchill was voted out of office, met with Stalin. They tried to come up with a deal. It didn't work. Uh, it's a very detailed question about why it didn't work. But basically, once they saw that it wasn't going to work around 1947 or so, we thought, okay, we at least have to keep the Russians out of what came. The Bundes Republic, the Federal Republic of Germany, keep them out of Italy, keep them out of France, and keep them out of Scandinavia. So it was like contain them in that area of Eastern Europe that they now have Poland, uh, the Russian occupation zone of Germany, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria. And how interesting so came about. How interested was. Stalin in actually promoting, let's call it, communist evangelization. So he never was—he never was that interested. In he never—he never trusted that the uh, Soviet Party could maintain domination of world communism if there were really dynamic communist parties in Western Europe, in Italy, France, Germany, and so on. He really saw the development of viable, grassroots, politically effective communist parties in those places as, as completely eclipsing them. Okay, so completely what? One. Completely what? Eclipsing the Soviet Party oh. for the domination of world communism. Okay. 
So in Mao won in 1949 at Groshen out of China into Formosa, Taiwan, which up until 1945 had been a Japanese possession. Okay. It suddenly seemed that the wellspring of communism was uh, in, in the peasant movement of world anti-imperialism. That China was basically leading the way for first China, India, then black Africa, uh, the Middle East, which at that time was dominated by the French, uh, all the other regions of the world to shake off the European yoke. And Latin America, so, Latin America as well? Latin America was were republics, mm-hmm. and they were pretty right-wing. They were pretty oligarchic. Mm-hmm. So they didn't really see that as part of part of their big scheme of things. Mm-hmm. But but what what the post-imperialist era did was it shifted the locus of communism from the proletariat of Europe to the revolutionary vanguards, the nationalist revolutionaries in. Uh, what we now term the third world, or what they term back then, now we call it the lesser developed countries. Uh, so, Moscow could view themselves as the great liberator force against France, uh, the United Kingdom to a lesser extent, and uh, Portugal, and, and, the, and the Dutch, the other European powers, I mean, which by now were very weak. Uh, trying to rebuild from the Second World War. So it, it suddenly seemed to the Russians, oh, we can be, we can be the leader of, of, of the world revolution. And as nationalism in the lesser developed countries became more revolutionary, I mean, in India, Gandhi was very successful at conducting a, uh, peaceful revolution, freeing the entire Indian subcontinent with without arms. I mean, it's not that it was completely peaceful. Mm-hmm. For the most part, it was uh, indigenous Indians and Pakistanis, you know, indig- people indigenous to the subcontinent. Uh, they didn't go terrorizing the British uh, they just essentially asserted their demographic strength and forced the British to grant them independence. Right. Uh, that that wasn't that wasn't the way it was. China, with the, the communists there, a couple of years later, China became, I would say, independent. They threw out the nationalists who were very very complicit with the Western powers. I mean, a big part of the Mao Revolution was Chinese nationalism. The communism was a big part of it too, but probably the nationalistic part was maybe equal to the the communist part. Okay. So, Moscow, because they were established, because they had maintained their industry after World War II, uh, 
were able to kind of become the leaders of, of the nationalist slash communist independence movements. Indonesia, China, uh, East Africa, Congo, a lot of places. So, and, and because the revolutionary movements were so much stronger than the Europeans, the war ravaged France, war ravaged Holland, war ravaged Belgium, war ravaged Britain were trying, you know, I mean, they were just barely holding on to it before the war, now broke. I mean, they were also uh, they were completely devastated culturally. Arsenals destroyed, their countries in shambles. You know, they just they just couldn't withstand it. And, you know, it's, 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 it's better. I mean, people should not be living in imperialist rule. So, and Eisenhower was fairly cognizant of that. I mean, he realized, yeah, these African countries have to be free. And Eisenhower was also uh, aware enough that he was able to recognize that not all the nationalist leaders were, were communists. Some of them were actual Democrats and small-d Democrats, and that they could be drawn into the Western camp, let's say. Mm-hmm. So there was there was a lot of a lot of competition. Kennedy, you know, we call him the quintessential Cold Warrior. He also had that, but he wanted to be much more forceful about it. He was much more interested in counterinsurgency through military means than Eisenhower ever was. Mm-hmm. And he started like the Green Berets, the Special Forces, he started the Peace Corps. So it was like a one-two punch. Idealistic young Americans going abroad to the developing countries to... Uh, so the Peace Corps was a, was a bit of a propaganda tool. Well, they, they also did useful work. They did they did infrastructure planning. They did a lot of the they did a lot of the soft demographic preparation that comes along with infrastructure. You know, helping people understand how to how to how to become more modern. You know, arranging the the companies, the uh, civic organizations, the municipal governments, the. Uh, the you know, all, all those things that go along with it. Now, okay. Now, moving back. And mm-hmm. having the counterinsurgency from the Green Berets to protect it militarily. Okay. Yeah, I understand the two, so two problems. the time just came to power unexpectedly. Because Johnson basically was on the Democratic ticket to uh, win Texas and to give Kennedy some kind of color or some kind of cover rather with conservative Democrats in the South. Mm-hmm. Uh, suddenly after Kennedy was killed, it looked like Vietnam was going was to collapse, become a communist country, and Johnson just didn't think that his administration could withstand a blow like that. That would be too big a political defeat. Okay, so, so that was, uh, okay, so did, you didn't really, we didn't really hit the other point. To go back to your question about the inevitability of communism. Okay. After Stalin died in 
To, let's go into how, what Johnson's, like, how much was he involved in the tactical side of the military? How did the war begin? I mean, there's the Tonkin Bay thing, right? How does the war begin? Um, what's the story about that? How, what is Johnson's view of how long the war will take? How does it mix with his domestic policy? Start getting, let's start moving into the details okay. of the war. I mean, the big thing to understand about Johnson was that he was not an executive. He was a legislator. Okay. Johnson knew how to write budget bills. Johnson knew how to write legislative uh, statutory law to accomplish certain things. Johnson basically and sincerely, I believe, was a New Deal Democrat. 
did he write the did he write the Great Society? Uh, did he have a hand, let's say, in writing the Great Society legislation package, or that was written by somebody else and just approved by him? A lot of it, a lot of it came from Truman. Okay. A lot of it came from Hubert Humphrey, who was also Johnson's vice president. Okay. And a lot of it was just kind of floating around from various academics. You know, I think like the uh, um, Head Start, I think, was pretty much an academic thing that, that uh, somebody wrote about it and Johnson figured, you know, let's do that. Would you say, would you say... <coughs> It's Barack, more Barack Obama-like in that Barack Obama's also good, like good at understanding no, and writing legislation. No, more no, Clinton-like. No, don't think you can compare it to anything they have. No, first of all, we were much closer in time to the Truman administration. Okay. So you know, I mean, these ideas still, you know, I mean, they were like. You know, Johnson was in his late twenties, early thirties when he heard these things. Now he was in his mid fifties, and you know, during the nineteen sixties, Johnson was in his mid fifties. These were things he remembered from twenty years before, and thought, you know, they're things we should do. Eisenhower basically had brought the Republican Party around to accept the New Deal and to uh, institutionalize the big uh, aspects of Social Security and other aspects of the New Deal. Yeah. So there was, there was a consensus back then around New Deal ideas. So Johnson really didn't want to get too far away from anything. Uh, Bayard Rustin, a famous black uh, intellectual who came up with some of the ideas, was probably the most radical person uh, among the Johnson uh, Humphrey people who were were coming up with these this legislation and remember the like Medicare you know one of the glittering jewels of the Great Society was basically passed by the by the uh, uh, great complicity of the Republican leader in the Senate. What what do you mean? So, without Republican support, they would have never passed Medicare. Oh, okay. And Everett Dirksen, the Republican leader in the Senate, asked for some alterations to Medicare. Uh, Johnson worked them out with them, and they, 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 passed, they passed Medicare through the Congress. Okay. So, there was a lot of Republican support with it. Okay. It was, it was bipartisan. Now, go back to Johnson as a weak... Ex- so let's go back to Johnson as a weak executive and how that impacted his approach to Vietnam. So he didn't understand how the military worked. I mean, he, he served in the military for like 90 days or something like that. Mm-hmm. May or may not have gotten shot at. Got a very high uh, military award uh, basically from... Uh, General MacArthur's political poll, you know, I said, you know, give Johnson uh, the Distinguished Service Cross, our second highest medal for valor. Uh, so he really didn't understand about how the military worked. He didn't understand about getting food overseas. He didn't understand about getting the fuels needed, the lubricants to run the equipment. 
you didn't know that much about the aircraft, the tanks, all that stuff. I mean, to him, it was all appropriations, uh, orders, you know. I mean, he basically didn't understand how it worked. So when he was working with McNamara, who was a good executive, McNamara would tell him, you know, we're going to put 300,000 men in Vietnam. Here's what it's going to cost us, you know, get us, you know, $13 billion, which, I mean, back then that was real money. I mean, now it, doesn't, it sounds kind of laughable, but back then that was 13% of the federal budget. Now, now hang on a second. Now, what, how many of those decisions of 300,000, you know, oh, let's get the let's get the lubricants for the tanks to move these 300,000 men around. Is Johnson himself, along with McNamara, you're saying, is he sitting down making that decision? And is is that is that what he does as commander-in-chief? Is that what a president still does, or does someone do that for him? The press at the time had Johnson signing off on anywhere from 150 to 1,500 different items a day. Wow. So he was, he was micromanaging. Exactly. But how effective is that? I mean, to me, that's a sign that Johnson really didn't know what he was doing. He wasn't reading any reports. People were coming in with him with documents, reading in the top page, having him sign off and then walking out, walking out the door with it. I mean, so if you're going to do 1,500 documents in a day... If you're gonna do fifteen, if you're gonna do fifteen hundred documents in a day, there's really no other way to do it other than just basically speed right through just, it. You know, you're just touching them. You're not reading anything. All right. So that was what. That's how he started. All right. And all right. So continue. So he wasn't. He didn't have a great grasp of it. What was his vision of it? What was his? Once he got into it, did he see that he didn't know what it? Did Did he see that? Mm -hmm. The person who just resigned as the NSA administrator, the, the chief of the National Security Agency, uh, General McMaster's, yep. wrote a book about it, and he and it was his, his PhD dissertation, and he he minutely describes the way the different armed service chiefs approached the war in Vietnam. Okay. Okay, because back then we had what they called the two and a half war doctrine. That we had forces sufficient to fight a bit more like the European theater in World War II. Yeah. The Pacific theater and a small, what they would call police action or bushfire war. Okay. And Vietnam. They called a brushfire war, but it was not like a World War II type conflict. But it was, you know, a little fire off on the off on the range that had to be put out. That was the what they were viewing it going into it. It became a major war at the time when it was done. It was the longest war in American history when it finished. No. No, now, right. But when Vietnam finished, it was at the time the longest war, no? It was long. So, the, the theory in Washington was uh, graduated escalation. Okay. So, escalation was basically 
that we would match the forces that the North Vietnamese put into the war. We would basically keep South Vietnam as a viable government and supply them men, weapons, training, and combat support, and in some cases even fight, fight the battles ourselves to keep South Vietnam as a viable government. And the idea was to, to make it cost the North Vietnamese so much that they would exist. Okay. And so it was a proxy. It was a proxy war. No, we were actually fighting it. Okay. And it was graduated because we were not going to exceed the level of commitment of the North Vietnamese. So if the North Vietnamese sent another two hundred thousand men, we sent two hundred fifty thousand men. Okay. Now we have enough force there to maintain control and to have a reasonable chance of defeating the North Vietnamese. But they basically had the initiative. I mean, this is, this is a huge mistake in warfare to allow the enemy to set terms of the conflict. And that was a big strategic error right from the beginning. We ceded that to the, to the Vietnamese when we settled on graduated escalation. Now, the masters show the Air Force Chief of Staff a man named Curtis LeMay wanted to follow him back into the Stone Age. Okay. And he believed, you know, go in with everything we've got, destroy everything, if it meant take on the Chinese, take on the Chinese. Okay. Why? Was he just racial? Was he just racially motivated or something? Were he just a pugnacious type? Oh, he hated communism. What did we do in World War Two? Right. So he was, he was a straightforward shooter. He didn't like the idea of going inside. Like you go in half-assed, you're gonna, you're gonna screw yourself over. You go in full force, and you give yourself a chance. Okay. Okay. Then the, the, the Navy was kind of in between, you know, because they had to handle all the logistics and everything. So they were like, if, if we're going to commit to it, let's win it. But they didn't have the idea necessarily of invading North Vietnam, bringing the Chinese, and so on like that. <coughs> then the Army and the Air Force were more like, we'll do what you tell us. Now, what was the American... Did, was the American populace, by and large, and maybe it went around uh, along age lines, but was the American populace, by and large, in favor of Vietnam when, when Johnson proposed the idea? And it did go through uh, Congress, right? It wasn't one of these wars where the president just says... It's, it's, it's a really, really complicated question to answer. Because we now believe that the resolution, the, the Tonkin Gulf Resolution, which was the declaration of war, right? You know, the non-declaration declaration of war, right? Was faked. Okay. That either the commanders on the scene. Uh, destroyer commanders either misinterpreted what was going on 
or they gave a vague report and then Johnson just flat lied about what they said. So, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think there's any credible historians now who believes that the North Vietnamese uh, sorted out and attacked our peaceful ships operating in the Gulf of Tonkin. Okay. You know, basically we were shelling the North Vietnamese coast, trying to interfere with their uh, defense capabilities to defend against the invasion, trying to interfere with their offensive capabilities of sending many material to the south. We were listening to their uh, communications. And just, just generally, you know, uh, being very bellicose towards them. Right. And I think that if you study the contemporary documents from both from both sides and look at the military dispatches and everything, I think you can make the argument more strongly that the North Vietnamese were acting in defense of their coastline and their military operations than you can U.S. Navy was over there conducting a peaceful mission or a, uh, a justifiable mission. Was it was it a fault? Would you go as far as to label it a false flag? No, I'd say that we were. Uh, I mean, we were showing their coast. No, so you're saying we were the we were the aggressors. Well, now now you start to get into uh, what. We're North and South Vietnam separate countries. I mean, the administration, the American administration made the argument North Vietnam is a separate country from South Vietnam. If there is North Vietnamese aid going to South Vietnam, that constitutes an invasion or infiltration. Back then they called it infiltration. Uh-huh. And that we were within our rights to interfere with that infiltration to try and stop it. Okay. N- all right. So that. But didn't the South Vietnamese not go, not even go to the um, vote? Say that again. Didn't the South Vietnamese not go to the vote when they were gonna, when they were gonna have the um, the vote? Yes, there was, was a, there was supposed to be a national plebiscite, and the South Vietnamese government canceled it because they didn't want to lose. So, yes. So, I mean, you know, the. It's, I think the American position is, is, is very, very damaged by that, but, you know, it makes it very hard to say that the South Vietnam is, is, is a legitimate government when they refuse to have the plebiscite right. that we agreed to. Right. Now, now uh, we'll have to get more into Johnson. I mean, we've been having, it's like Vietnam is, a, is, like, is itself like a jungle, having to get through all the details of it. Oh, it's what, very difficult. What was what was um, Johnson's expectations for? Because what I feel like swayed the. I mean, and this happens in most wars. What you need, I mean, you need a lot of things to win a war. But one of the big things you need is like the people behind you, right? Like you need the spirit of the people to be behind the war. If the people check out on the war, if they lose their will, if they if they uh, we're going to have to probably talk about... What? 
It depends on the country. It depends on the war. I mean, it seems like that in this country that if the if the series was the Mexican War, and you know, the American people were very divided about it. Okay, and so, but don't, don't you believe that one of the things that caused the at least Johnson to go to be to have a certain level of infamy regarding Vietnam and and just I mean Vietnam nowadays is seen as a complete failure don't you believe that that's because of the um, public and popular response to the war so and did 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 Johnson see that coming or did it blindside him and how did he react Johnson was very two-faced about it because when he campaigned in 1964, he kept saying, I'm not going to send American boys to fight where Asian boys should be fighting. Okay. So basically, we weren't going to have a war in Vietnam. Right. Then a year later, well, actually, let's see, that was November, so in the spring, a few months later, uh, from the fall of 1964 to the spring of 1965, they were engaged. So clearly Johnson was being duplicitous in his political campaign. Right. And he continued with that. He continued saying, this is going to be a short war. We're going to defeat them. You know, we're going to raise the ante a little bit. We're going to raise the stakes a little bit. We're going to put a little more pressure on them. They're going to fold. We're going to win, and it's all going to be over. So Johnson was never truthful to himself. I don't think his advisors were truthful to Johnson, and none of them were truthful to the American people. Did he... Did mm -hmm. really didn't understand what what we were getting ourselves into, how costly it was going to be. They did not understand at all that the military capability of the North Vietnamese. But if Johnson is lying to himself and he's lying to the people and his advisors are lying to them, it feels like they would have a high psychological cost on Johnson to because there would be a lot of cognitive dissonance. He's telling himself one thing, he's telling the American people one thing, but then the results keep coming in day after day after day, that the war keeps dragging on, that the ante keeps having to be raised, that it doesn't look like we're winning. That in, the, in the early part of 1967, I mean, 1966 was a pretty good year militarily. I mean, we had some big battles and we appeared to have won them. But by 1967, it was apparent that the success of 1966 was just getting our forces into Vietnam, getting the bases established, demonstrating that we could fight there, but we weren't close to winning at all. Yeah. So... The, the term was the credibility gap. The, the, the government's credibility had couldn't really trust what they were saying. All right. Well, mm -hmm. that continued to expand all through 1967. Because again, Johnson didn't understand the war, didn't understand military uh, operations didn't really have that good of a grasp of American politics. I mean, he knew under the dome in Washington, but he really didn't understand the American economy or 
the, the way the American people felt about things. Even though he had been immensely popular and won a uh, first landslide victory since uh, Ro Roosevelt's victory in 1936, he really didn't understand the politics as well as we all give him credit for understanding it. He understood legislation. He understood symbolism, but he didn't know how to run a government. Yeah. I would like to go back and, and talk more about the 64 election. I know it feels like we're just getting started with this conversation, and due to time constraints, we're going to have to pretty much end. Um, going into our next episode, I just want to outline the things that I would like to, I mean, I would like to hit, and you can add any other points you would like to hit. I would like to hit uh, a few more of the details about how, what big events I know about, like the the Tet Offensive, some other events in the Vietnam War, the fat and and how those impacted the um, Johnson's approach when he, uh, I mean I don't, what when he got out of office, the war was still going right. So what what was his what was his feeling about leaving? Did he feel like he left defeated? Uh, and then Nixon takes over, I believe. No, and then Nixon goes in, does he come in with a fresh zest? And then also how the how it's intertwined Johnson's domestic victories with his foreign failures. Uh, I would also like to review the sixty four election. Any things that you wanted to So I would I would begin at, at the assassination of Kennedy. Okay. Because Johnson realized he had to take over the government. He had to establish himself as the legitimate successor of Kennedy. Yeah. He had to free himself of any suspicion that he was involved with Kennedy's murder. Right. So, Johnson, I mean, he did that very well. And um, how, uh, we're, we're wrapping this up. Yeah, we, we have to for time. Yeah. We spoke about some of the transition last episode. American engagement in Vietnam, and then Nixon tried how Nixon tried to break free of it. Okay. All right. So that'll be our next episode. All right. Well, it was a pleasure speaking to you, and hopefully, we'll be able to get our next episode in for our listeners uh, sooner rather than later. And um, anyway, I look forward to uh, seeing you and talking to you again soon. All right. Very good. All right. Have a good night. So take care. All right. Thank you.